another episode of the talking space podcast this is talking space episode 715 for the week of monday november 16th 2015 never realized how many numbers are actually in that opening but it is a lot i am sawyer rosenstein and joining me tonight is gene mcculka welcome gene hey sawyer and uh, to those of you in france we stand with you indeed and we will get into that in just a little bit welcome as well cassie tamanini aka craftlass Hey, at least we don't have a bunch of acronyms in our opening. Numbers are cool. At least it's not a million acronyms because we say plenty throughout the show. Hi, everybody. <laughs> OMG, LOL, KK. Yeah, no, I get it. <laughs> and welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Hello. Kat Robinson, who's normally with us, is a little bit under the weather. We hope that she feels better and will be back with us again very, very soon. In the meantime, though, let's get right into the news because there is a lot of space news that has been going on. But before we do that, of course, we do have to address the world news that has happened this past week, and that is the terrorist attacks in Paris. And it is a terrible event, and all of us here at the team of Talking Space stand with the people in Paris, as do the people aboard the International Space Station who today, on today's recording date, November 16th, 2015, took a moment of silence for the events. And we will do the same. However, there is a lot that is still going on aboard the International Space Station during this past week, and that includes a power failure that happened this weekend. Right, Gene? Thanks, sir. Yeah, one of the eight power stations, uh, or one of the eight power channels uh, went down, I believe it was last Friday. According to NASA, there were really no impacts to crew activities and you know, it was sort of business as, as usual on the space station. Communications are in good shape. Everything is in, in good shape. All command and control systems are functioning normally. Uh, ground teams are looking into future repair plans at right now, according to the NASA website, and are currently managing power balances and things like that for the foreseeable future. They're looking into possible repair parts and what's needed. Those repair parts probably will not make it onto OA-4, which is the next cargo run to the International Space Station. But uh, all in all, the ISS is in good shape. The crew is in no danger. It's just a matter of getting the parts up there so the repairman can do the job. We're not sure whether, whether or not that repair is going to require an EVA or not or a spacewalk, but... Uh, Again, stay tuned. NASA's looking into the problem. It's not a huge deal. It doesn't really impact station operations all that much. So we're in good shape. And the ISS and the crew are also in great shape. So science continues. The crew is hard at work. And uh, the ISS keeps chugging along. Indeed. But anytime you hear of a power failure aboard the space station, it does, you know, scary a little bit. Although... Again, this is NASA, and there is the favorite word of redundancy in all of these backups. They were able to transfer most of the experiments and everything onto those other buses. But still, you know, it didn't get that much play on Twitter from what I saw, but that's still usually kind of a big deal. Yeah, and again, to stress, this was one of eight power channels. So the station's in great shape. It can still continue on, and it can still move on. I think this is just going to be a throwing a circuit breaker or finding out what things need to be replaced to get that particular power channel back online. I'm sure the, the ground teams have got it well in hand. It's just a matter of getting the parts up there, and I'm not sure what, when those parts are going to be delivered. I do know that we have another cargo mission destined for the International Space Station. This will be through SpaceX, the CR-8 mission, currently sort of tentatively slated, it's kind of difficult to read the SpaceX manifest sometimes, 
but it is tentatively slated for the beginning of January. I think the last time we were talking during pre-show, Sawyer, it was January 8th, but that's probably... I don't want to say up in the air, but that's the best best term I can come up with right now. So we'll, we'll just yeah, more like on the ground. Yeah, right. But we'll we'll just, we'll just keep an eye on it. I know know the Russians too. They've got a they just announced too. There's going to be a month delay in the next progress mission as well. So fingers crossed uh, as far as uh, OA4 is concerned. We'll get into that a little later. Exactly. In fact. Let's get into it right now, because there is, with the International Space Station, all these resupply missions. And the next resupply mission to the ISS is the OA-4 mission. That is Orbital ATK launching their Cygnus craft aboard an Atlas V instead of their usual rocket, of course, after the failure that happened last year. This Atlas V mission is scheduled to launch on December 3rd, 2015 from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station with a launch window of sometime between 5.55 and 6.25 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, which is 22.55 and 23.25 GMT. Now, I mean, this is big for Orbital. This is their return, even if it is on an Atlas. Pretty big, right? Oh, yes. A swan is finally getting her wings again. And uh, the other side of the coin on this one, this Cygnus spacecraft is also a very different one than the one we lost on Orb 3. This one is going to be a, a bit larger. It's going to have much more cargo capacity to it. The solar arrays are different on this one. These are the same solar arrays that probably would have been used on the Orion spacecraft. But now, since we are using an offshoot of the ATV for uh, the service module for Orion, this and of course, the ATV was the European Space Agency's spacecraft. Now, a sort of an upgraded version of that is going to be the, the service module for Orion. That left these solar panels without a home. And I guess folks over at Orbital said, well, we'll take a look at those and decided to adopt them for their own use on board Cygnus. There was also announced officially that the name of this particular Cygnus spacecraft will be after the late Donald K. Slayton. So this will be the SS Deke Slayton II. If you recall, the original spacecraft Deke Slayton was the Orb 3 mission, which unfortunately we lost. I think too. Sorry, and this is something else we were talking about with Orbital ATK. And Mark, you also alluded to this last time out, or at least in a previous episode when we discussed the NASA Investigator General report on this. This spacecraft is actually demonstrating its versatility by flying on an Atlas V. It will be able, because it's flying on Atlas V, it's going to be carrying a lot more cargo up to the International Space Station. And uh, because of that, too, I believe Orbital ATK has said that they're, when we discussed this on the last program, that their uh, launch manifest is going to be a lot smaller to complete the CRS-2 contract uh, agreement. And it looks like that might be actually completed by October of next year. Because it looks like, too, that the next launch will also be on Atlas V. Uh, I believe that's tentatively scheduled for March of next year. And uh, after that, in May of 2016, we return to Pad 0A at the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport to carry Cygnus on board uh, Antares for the first time since the accident last October. And I believe the next mission for that will be in October, again, out of Wallops. And that would basically complete the CRS-1 contract right there. I believe we had mentioned that uh, Orbital ATK does have some follow-on contracts for this, and they may also involve an Atlas V launch as well. So the future's promising for this little swan here. We are really, really looking forward to seeing Cygnus get back in the game, as well as Dragon, too, in the not-too-distant future. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're all excited to see all these players get back in the game because the more people there are able to launch and resupply the space station the better off everybody is plus who doesn't love a good launch well yeah plus um uh, we are going to be there mark you you're going to be over there and, and mark you've got a very interesting assignment so to speak if you could go ahead and just whet our appetite a little bit with reference to what your goings on are going to be with the upcoming uh oa4 launch 
Yeah, about a month ago, uh, early October, I got the opportunity to talk with the Kennedy Space Center Weather Office folks about a new system, uh, not a new system, but an upgraded replacement system, the Doppler Radar Wind Profiler. And uh, hopefully during the pre-launch activities for the orbital launch, I'll have the opportunity to go out to the radar wind profiler site and see the equipment operations, see the operators, look at the data that they're seeing and get a, a little bit better grasp because this is really uh, pretty far over my head for weather systems that, that I work with. But to me, it's interesting to be able to measure wind and to have precision at altitudes up to 60,000 feet. So hopefully that's going to work out and I'll be able to bring you a little firsthand and uh, we'll do a, a beginner's version of how a wind profiler works. And uh, I think that they're also going to be doing a balloon launch. So maybe I'll get to see data from that and see how it equates to the wind profiler system. So it should be interesting. Hopefully it'll work out and I'll be sure and talk about it when it does. So we got a lot coming up there. We've got Mark, who's going to be at the Kennedy Space Center doing the weather profiler, and that's going to be, I'm excited to hear that one. And Gene McCulloch and myself, we will both be at the Kennedy Space Center as well, covering the OA4 launch. So expect a lot of stuff out of the Cape in our next episode. We hope you'll tune in for that. But in the meantime, we got plenty more to cover here tonight. And we even hinted at that a bit. And that is the commercial resupply mission contracts are coming up once again. Well, eventually coming up because they were delayed once again. Right, Gene? Oh, boy. Yeah, this was, I, I don't know, the, this was probably the umpteenth delay. I think I've, I've lost track on how many times the announcement was delayed. It was actually supposed to be presented in October last month, and they pushed it to November, and then finally it's been pushed to the right yet again. However, the most interesting aspect of this particular announcement is NASA indicated that Boeing's CST Starliner cargo version is no longer being considered as part of the CRS-2 contract. So it looks like both the Jupiter spacecraft that was being planned by Lockheed Martin and now the CST-100 Starliner are also kind of odd men out in this. And uh, the interesting thing, though, is that SNC's automated dream chaser is still in the running on this. And I'm also kind of wondering why they, they pushed it back to the right again. My guess is we want to take a look at how both Orbital ATK and SpaceX are able to go ahead and recover from the stumble that both companies have made with the with the CRS-1 contract. Uh, we did lose a, a Dragon spacecraft over the summer, and we, of course, lost Cygnus back on October 28th of last year. OA-4, which is the new Cygnus spacecraft, is just about ready to go on the launch pad, and it will be on another company's spacecraft. So I guess they, they want to give Orbital ATK a chance to demonstrate their resilience and, of course, their uh, flexibility flying on another vendor's spacecraft. And Mark, as you pointed out, Orbital ATK is very good at doing that. The story that you relayed about, uh, I believe, was the New Horizons spacecraft that was outfitted on, a, on an Atlas V, but also with Boeing getting involved in that. So you know, that, that's at least my guess. But the interesting thing is that SNC's Dream Chaser is still hanging in there and is still under consideration. I'll throw this out to the group. Do you think that spacecraft is going to get a piece of the spy, or, or do you think it's going to be odd man out? I don't know if it's actually going to get the contract. I, I really don't feel comfortable myself speculating on whether it will. Do I think it's a good idea? Absolutely. As we were talking about in the last episode, we need more ways to get cargo down and onto Earth, get experiments back. And so personally, I'm cheerleading for them. I absolutely want SNC to be part of this. I think it'd be great. But I admit I have bias. I love Dream Chaser. <laughs> so it could be a little bit personal. But I think from a logical perspective, it's something we could really use. 
And I'll, I'll throw something in too. I, I talked to the Sierra Nevada folks at KSC in early October briefly and, you know, go figure. How could I miss important stuff? Yeah, easy. <laughs> I always do. But I didn't know about the Dream Chaser cargo variant they were proposing. And just looking at information on their website, it's going to have both pressurized and unpressurized up mass. It's also on a return going to be able to have both orbital disposal and pressurized cargo return. So they're going to be able to do two variations of cargo going up, pressurized and unpressurized, and they're going to be able to dispose of cargo uh, on return. In other words, burn up on reentry, as well as return it in a pressurized spacecraft. And nobody else can do that. And that's so phenomenal. And it speaks to why I love Dream Chaser so much. It's not just because it's an adorable mini shuttle. It's because it's this really, it can be customized in so many ways to do so many different types of orbital work. And that's a really great idea. Something that can be so reconfigured, that can have so many different uses. I've seen their plans for how they could do laboratories. I've seen all kinds of drawings of different variations on how you can set up Dream Chaser. And that just seems really clever. It's like in the kitchen, I don't like a unitasker. I want something that can do at least five or six things or I won't buy it. And I feel like Dream Chaser is the multitasker. More, Not that there aren't other spacecraft that can do multiple things, but like you said, Mark, with that kind of capability, it's just, I feel like they thought through everything so much when it comes to the actual utility of the vehicle, not just the functionality. Sir, what do you think on this? Do you think uh, SNC is going to get a piece of the CRS-2 pie? Do you think it's going to be evenly split up between three companies? Or do you think one of the two players right now are going to be odd out? I mean, the crude version of the Dream Chaser, it got really close. It was down to the final three, and you know they fought that for a while. And in the end, Boeing and SpaceX won that one. But, I mean, they were strong contenders for that. Now that they have a cargo version of it, I think they're also going to be strong contenders. If they lose a second time... That's just going to be bitterly painful. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I mean, they have a great design. They even after the rejection, they still kept fighting, kept building, kept testing, and you know, it's had its share of issues. There was that landing test where the nose gear had problems and all that. But you know, they like all the other companies so far have had their setbacks and they've fixed them and have continued to work towards it. So I'm hoping that they get a chance at it, but. You know, they may just say, hey, we've got two that work. Let's use those. All right. Thank you. I think personally, the fact that Dream Chasers seems to be getting another chance is, is a testament to what a lot of you folks have already said. It's flexibility in certain missions and so on. Last year when I was at IAC, I spent a lot of time talking to the SNC people, and this was right after they'd found out that they were out of the crude contract. And so I was asking them, you know, are you, what are you planning to do? And all they kept saying is, we know that this is a useful spacecraft. We know that this is going to find its place. We are not giving up on it. And ever since then, they've just lived up to everything that they were saying. They've kept going. And that says a lot about their tenacity as a company and how many visions they have, again, for this spacecraft. It can apply for almost anything. And that kind of determination, that's something that does make you do well over the long haul. It's a lot of why SNC is a successful company. So they seemed real determined that they're going to find the right places for Dream Chaser. They're not going to give up on it just because of a few contract setbacks. So I'm hoping that they continue with that mindset no matter what happens. To play devil's advocate a little bit on, on the, what that says about SNC, what does that also say about the other two players right now? In what way? Well, that's what I'm asking. Um, what does that say? You know, you're talking about tenacity and so on. I see also a lot of tenacity both in space exploration technologies and in uh, in orbital ATK. I think that says that we have a healthy space industry. Yeah. I mean, that's what you need. If, if you don't have that kind of tenacity, you do not belong in space. That's what I was getting at. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's exactly what I was getting at. The other thing, too, is I'm looking at another possible mission 
for the Dream Chaser. Now, everybody knows the X-37B. Nobody knows what it's doing up there. But do we see Dream Chaser also possibly filling in that niche as well, being an X-37B alternative, if you will? And can it perform a military mission if it had to? And if it can, how long can it stay up there? Can it, you know, out X-37B, the (laughs) X-37B? That's another possibility for it. And can it carry out the same kind of missions that X-37B can? So it's still, it's a very versatile spacecraft. It'll be interesting to see what, once the CRS-2 contracts are announced, who's the, uh, the people still standing. I don't want to throw this out for prediction because it's too close to call in my book. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And also, you know, it's the whole thing that it's not our decision. We're just people talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we do a good job at that, I have to admit. (laughs) (laughs) But it is kind of fun to speculate. And of course, once we find out, that will be one of our top stories when it does come out. So um, hopefully that won't be delayed for much longer. It's an exciting race. I can't wait to actually find out who gets it. And I'm really, like I said, I'm cheering hard for SNC on this one because I think it's time Dream Chaser gets its chance. I think it will. Uh, Even if not here, I think they're they're still looking. I mean, they haven't given up on the piloted version. I I completely agree with you. Like, that's the thing. It's going to find its place. It's a matter of when. But I would like to see our government give it its chance at this particular contract. I would personally really, really like to see that. And indeed, we will wait and see. Let's continue along. Let's move outside of Earth orbit. And in fact, how about we just go continually outward? We'll just go in order. So what's next? We've got us and then, oh yeah, the moon. Well, there's talks about the whole lunar-based concept, and I believe Charlie Bolden, NASA Mayor, has something to say about that concept. What is it? Yet, <laughs> in plain English, uh, or should I say plain Russian? Well, we, we talked about this on a couple shows ago with Kat Robinson when, when, when she was here and talking about her experiences at IAC. One of the things that did come up was what do you do after the International Space Station? Uh, at the time, Charlie Bolden's counterpart over at ESA came up with this idea of a lunar village, essentially a permanently uh, populated lunar base that one could go to and uh, conduct research and essentially have an international space station type experience, but on the lunar surface where you... I would like to point out that he has been talking about this since before he was posted at ESA. This is a pet idea of his that he has been pushing for a while. And I found stories from before he was appointed. I mean, it's... He, this is his passion. This is his mission, is he wants to see this moon village happen. That's uh, Johan Dietrich uh, Warner, who is the current lead of the uh, European Space Agency. He first floated this idea, well, he floated it at, at IAC. And... But it had been covered for a while right. before that. He's been talking about this. They did a big BBC feature, I think last June or May, on this. So he's been talking about it a while. IAC, I think, was the first time... He got to talk about it on a stage with other heads of agency. Mm-hmm. And so with Charlie Bolden sitting right, right next to him and, from our country. <laughs> and, and, and to pick it up from that point, Administrator Bolden's comment, and I'm quoting an article here written by uh, Mark Whittington from The Hill, quote, the U.S. does not have to be the country that says we're going, follow us. We're all going back to the surface of the moon, but it's just that the United States has no intention of leading that effort. We will support and be along with anybody that does decide to go. So this is kind of falling hand in hand with the current administration's thoughts on the moon. And we've covered that, unfortunately, ad nauseum here on this program the administration kind of looks at the return to the lunar surface as sort of like, you know, your father's space program and been there, done that, where we're not sure exactly where lunar resources could fall in on a potential Mars flight. And when, 
again, I'm, I'm going to allude to well, last April, uh, I sat in on a uh, discussion that Bill Gerstenmeier gave at the Northeast Astronomy Forum. And he was saying that the moon does play a part in our Mars effort. However, at that point, he said he didn't think that a return to the moon to the lunar surface was in the cards. However, I kind of got the feeling that this was sort of, they were kind of sitting on the fence on this one and trying to say, well, you know, it, it may not be in the cards now, but sometime in the future, who knows, it may still be there. One of the things that I, I will mention here is that the Federal Aviation Administration has indicated that they might want to pick up the ball here a little bit, where NASA seems to lack some interest here. The FAA, however, may want to, you know, they suggested that perhaps uh, some of the commercial space transportation companies may want to look into joining ESA and perhaps even the Russians in starting a lunar effort if NASA doesn't seem to be interested in doing it. So the United States might still have a hand in this. It just might not be NASA doing it. And well, that's something yeah, that I find intriguing. The FAA involvement, from what I understood, he was talking about as far as commercial companies being involved in this. And considering that Werner's idea is to have it be a public-private thing, have commercial companies involved right from the get-go. I mean, we're talking actually bigger than the ISS because we're starting from talking about from the start agencies, companies cooperating, working together. So it's sort of like the ISS is now is how it would start. And so the FAA getting involved on the commercial side, I don't know how any of that would work, but anybody who's interested, I just want to applaud. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to do my homework on how that would work. If we, Yeah, we, we need a lot yeah, more info. Yeah, well, I know this is kind of throwing it over the wall a little bit, but and I don't want to even speculate, but are we talking like possibly the FAA playing a regulatory role in this? Beats me. Yeah. Because <laughs> that, that, that's the only only role I could see the FAA playing, where they would sort of be the, the regulatory authority over companies that are, are sending things to the lunar surface or sending, sending vehicles to the lunar surface. Uh, NASA may still continue to offer their training and so on, but wow, this is sort of a little bit of a bombshell, I think. You know, I, what I thought it was interesting in the article that you sent us about this, which I cannot locate right now, what I thought was interesting was that there was an opinion that this can't happen unless the U.S. is a leader in it. And I feel like that's such an American-centric viewpoint to have because every country in the world besides the U.S. is interested in going to the surface. Every country that has any form of space program, even ones that could never possibly do it themselves, have interest in this. That was one of the big things that I noticed at IAC last year and that Kat mentioned about IAC this year is last year I actually went to entire days of sessions that were just people making an argument for why we need to go back to the surface of the moon. So it seems like the only people who disagree with that notion are our president and administrator here in America. Yeah, and, and I still, I mean, we've had the discussion here before. I, I, I still say, going back to the lunar surface, getting our teeth sharpened a little bit again, going to the moon where you're three days away from a ham and cheese sandwich if something goes wrong, you eat what you, you want to eat, I'll eat what I want to eat. You know, it's it's a no-brainer to go ahead and, and test your, your metal again going into planetary. And then trying to see what resources are there at the lunar surface that can help you as a stepping stone to getting to Mars. Maybe you don't need to bring all your fuel with you. Maybe you can tank up at the moon first and then take off from there. You know, it's just possibilities like that. Is there any other resource on the lunar surface that can help you get to Mars? I think we're, we're skipping an opportunity. Well, and here's the thing, is that our exploration of the moon, even with all the robotic missions, even with all of the crewed missions that went back in the day, we still, there, there's still a lot we don't know. And 
in a lot of ways, I think we're at a point where we need to have humans on that surface if we're going to continue to learn at the rate that we've been learning about it. I think we need to actually have some human brains on that surface guiding human bodies. I think that's actually really important because there are you know, when we send robotic missions, they're each designed to do specific things. The human brain can process so many, so much more and, and make decisions that you just can't make when you're controlling a robot from Earth and it's on the moon or it's in orbit around the moon that I just think it's a missing opportunity for science as well. It, it just in general, that I don't understand at all the logic of missing out on that. Yeah, I, mean, I, mean, I never have. Yeah, again, uh, to, to, to come back to that a little bit more, if you also look at, at how much we've explored on the moon, and to say that it's been there, done that, we've only really scratched the surface. And I think, Completely. You know, so... It's like saying you've been to New York City and you know all of New York State. Yeah, I mean, I, I, was, I was about to say... 99% of New York State is not New York City. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it's like somebody coming over here, you know, from Europe and saying, ah, I've seen the United States. And the only thing you've seen is, what, Elizabeth, New Jersey. You know, come <laughs> on. Yeah, it, it's it's just not not the right way to term it. We, we really only scratched the surface on the moon. And I think a returning there is not a backward step. It's not a pullback on a voyage to Mars. It's actually an enhancement. And actually, if there's any chance of having some kind of full-time presence on Mars someday, I think the moon is the place to begin that. The moon is the place to start this concept of people even living out their lives on another surface. That's the, the moon. It's our neighbor. It's there. It's, <laughs> you can even see it from New York City. It's so bright and big and there. And there, there's a lot of advantages to that. I mean, like you said, training bases. There's so much science that can be done. The lower gravity creates incredible opportunities. Another dream I've always had is I would love to see a telescope on the dark side of the moon. Oh. That's my ultimate dream as far as nearby space travel and construction. So having a situation where there are people living, working, maybe someday even raising their families on the moon surface, that's actually, that's what I see. That's what I want because I want people to be able to, I want us to be able to go further. And I think there's a lot on the moon that can teach us how to do that. But I also want to be able to see further. I want to, there's, there's just so many advantages and I just don't see the downside. What is the downside? Seems like moon colonization is always an interesting topic here at Talking Space. And we all have our opinions. And of course, if you have your own opinions, we'd love to hear yours. Email them to us, mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. Tweet it at Talking Space. Post it on our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Talking Space. We also have a Google Plus page. Feel free to post it on that as well. All right, then. So we said we were continuing outward from the Earth. So after the Earth came the moon. And after the moon, I believe, comes Mars. There was a pretty big Mars announcement that came out this past week, if I'm not wrong. Am I not wrong? Uh, no, Sawyer, you're not wrong. Back, I believe, November 5th, NASA announced that uh, the Mars Atmosphere Viable Evolution Probe, or MAVEN, which is currently in orbit around the Red Planet, found that uh, solar storms were the likely cause of stripping the planet's atmosphere and water over billions of years. Scientists even reported that the solar wind is stripping the uh, the atmosphere away today at about 100 grams of atmospheric gas per second. There was some speculation during the press conference, well, could something like that happen here on Earth? The answer is no, and the reason is, again, is, is Earth is a little bit more massive than Mars is and has a, a much more better structure around it as far as its atmosphere and so on. We just don't see that on Mars right now. Uh, it may also put the punctuation mark on a couple of ambitious plans that you know, you've seen running around. For instance, I don't think Mars is a good terraforming candidate at this point since it cannot hold on to an atmosphere. It would sort of be kind of foolish to go ahead and, and, and invest all that time and effort and money in, in trying to 
go ahead and, and terraform a world that just will never retain a thick atmosphere anymore. But that was one of the first things I thought about when hearing about this. And I believe that question did come up during the press conference as well. And I believe they, they kind of allude to the same thing I just did, where Mars just simply would not be a good candidate for any kind of planetary engineering. So I'm not exactly all that sure as far as uh, the terraforming folks, at least for Mars anyway, may be out of business at this point. Again, I've had debates long and hard with folks like that. And if you're going to go ahead and terraform a world that is a astronomical kind of undertaking, not just from a monetary, but also from a time standpoint, you have to be really, really dedicated. I mean, you're talking a multi-generational effort. I know Elon Musk thinks you could do it by blowing up a couple of nuclear bombs over there or whatever it was. And again, it, it just goes to show that the effort may prove futile. It, it's kind of sad, though. You, you sort of had this look of trying to see what Mars might have been like at some point in its past. And unfortunately, because it did not have as much, you know, wasn't as massive as, as Earth, it just could not hold on to the same kind of atmosphere, which is probably why the planet's in its current state. What does that do for the possibility of life there at some point? Don't know. Is there anything over there right now? Who knows? But uh, maybe sometime in its distant past, the, the planet was capable of harboring life. And who knows, we, the search for fossils somewhere on the Martian surface may still be viable. But to uh, think that there might be something there now, I'm not sure. It, it might just be simply little microbes that are, that are just kind of lying dormant and just waiting for an opportunity to come forward. But who knows? All we know is that why uh, Mars is in its current state and uh, at least from its atmosphere is concerned. So the MAVEN mission has already given us a, a good piece to that puzzle. So it will continue doing its work, and we'll look forward to seeing more studies from MAVEN. So way to go, MAVEN. And, I mean, that's awesome with Mars' atmosphere. And exciting. I mean, no terraforming, yeah. But still, it's cool to find out all this stuff just about these planets and their past. And I, I love it. I absolutely love it, even if it's terrible for eventual humans living there. I love it. So I figure while we're hanging out around Mars, how about we visit one of the moons of Mars? And today I'm feeling like Phobos needs some love, especially since it's going through a rough breakup. Eh? Oh, God. You, you want to explain why that's funny? Oh, I almost want to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I'm resisting the, the temptation to throw something. Well, the but, audience uh, isn't going to get this until we explain the story, so please let them laugh at my joke. Oh, boy. Anyway, unfortunately, it looks like the Martian moon Phobos is going to, well, it's going to another 30 to 50 million years uh, due to possible tidal forces acting on it, it may be ripped apart by, uh, by those tidal forces. Now you see why it's funny? Um, uh. the, in fact, there's an interesting photograph, which I'm going to try to go ahead and grab from the NASA website. Uh, you can actually see the striation marks on the moon as on here. It's, it may have already begun to fail. So it's something that we're going to be studying and looking at very, very closely. According to uh, uh, NASA scientist Terry Hertford, and I'm probably botching his last name, I do apologize, at the Goddard Space Flight Center, quote, we think that Phobos has already started to fail, and the first sign of this failure are the production of these grooves. If you go ahead and take a look at the photograph, there's an interesting photograph we're going to throw in the show notes on the NASA website. You can actually see the grooves kind of look like almost tire marks on the moon's surface. And, uh, or like deep scratches. Yeah, exactly. And uh, You know, the uh, <laughs> Australia's ABC, on their article about it, they uh, talk about them as stretch marks. And all I keep thinking today, not to step on your joke, Sawyer, is we need to get a giant thing of cocoa butter up to it. Quick. Oh, <laughs> That's all right. I'm still because... happy with my joke more. <laughs> I could say something yeah. about a potato. <laughs> Given, you know, the, the, the whole deal with you know, the movie, the tie-in with the Martian and all that. But it's kind of sad, actually. But Phobos looks like it may not be long for this universe. 
Yeah, they're saying it could actually be a rebel pile barely being held together at this point already. I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, it's not looking good. Yeah, so. And especially because uh, the grooves don't radiate from the impact crater. So it's. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'm looking at the photograph. You're absolutely correct. They're, they're just, just going down the side. They almost look like racing stripes going down the side of this little world. And it looks like the breakup, as, the, as NASA had alluded to, may already be underway. Yeah, they're saying it's barely being held together and surrounded by a layer of powdery rock, dust, and soil about 100 meters thick. So it's... I, this is another thing it keeps making me think of is like a powder compact, you know, like makeup, how it's this hard thing, but it's just the, this compressed powder. And if you drop one, it just shatters, you know, that seems to be sort of the state they think Phobos is in. Yeah. And it, it would be intriguing at this point to have a have a small lander visit the world and Wouldn't it? try, try <laughs> to take take measurements as, as far as what might be happening underneath and really, really confirm the, the finding. And help us learn more about the process of how does a moon fall apart? Mm -hmm. They're also saying um, that the same fate may also await Triton because it has a similarly fractured surface, and yeah. that one's collapsing inward. This seems to be pulling apart, but watching the two of them and the different processes that they go through, once again, it could reveal so much about how this can happen and also what creates the difference yep and you know and well well the thing is too triton is a is a tiny little you know world in and of itself geysers the whole bit phobos mm -hmm. is is a what we think is a captured asteroid right so there's a there's a little bit of a difference there of course of course but watching the two go through some such similar experiences around the same time makes it even more interesting because there's a comparison to be made. And, you know, the more we have stuff to compare, the more we learn, right? Yeah, I'm going to throw something out there. You know, we're talking about engineering. We're talking about moving asteroids around and so on and so forth. We're talking, you know, we, we've got the uh, the asteroid redirect mission somewhere slated if, if it actually survives. I'm sort of on the fence on that one, but we'll see. Theoretically... If that works, you could theoretically pull this thing out of at least danger, couldn't you? And kind of, you know, sort of do, you know, capture and release, right? Theoretically, although I don't know if if it's that powdery underneath. Of course, we don't know for sure that it really is. Yeah. But I would think that that would be a factor. And it could be that even trying to pull it out of its orbit could be what breaks it up, too. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> you know, Could if be something doing more was, harm than good at that point. Exactly, and this is the thing: is we just don't know. This is something that's new to us, and understanding how you know what's going on. It, you know, I mean, that's one of the problems. Obviously, I'm a huge supporter of humans doing all kinds of stuff in space, but that's one of the problems: is that we literally don't know. It's like all the more reason we get a nice lander. And get to the exactly. surface all the more reason. I mean, we've just we have a history, particularly in America, we have a history of destroying things as we're discovering them. <laughs> so now this is more on our planet. You know, examples like we discovered a brand new species of fish because we poisoned the river that it lived in, and they all died. So it simultaneously we committed genocide and discovered a new species. We do things like that. But the thing is, it's really hard to prevent that. It's really hard to prevent that because you can't know what effect something's going to have until you actually do it. You can speculate all you want. You can come up with models. Yeah, just don't know for sure until you actually do something. So it's an interesting concept. Could <laughs> I'm imagining save Phobos posters all of a sudden and a hashtag. <laughs> I think you may have just started something brilliant. <laughs> Oh, boy, I can see it already. <laughs> yes. Save Phobos, brought to you by Talking Space. <laughs> T-shirt. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the day we start doing T-shirt sales, that's going to be one of the first ones. I can almost guarantee it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so yeah, glad but I we got to show Demos some love. We got to show Demos some love, though, too. I mean, Phobos, though, has gotten the grunt of it. 
pardon the Phobos grunt pun from the yeah, animation well. <laughs> that didn't make it, but, well. you know, between originally just going to crash into the surface of Mars, now I'm going to get torn apart before it crashes into the surface of Mars. That poor moon. Well, actually, sir, it's funny you bring that up. Russia's actually wanting to reincarnate that mission. Uh, they want to refly it, and they're, they may very well do that. So, and, and now there's all the more reason to make sure that mission flies so that data can be retrieved and see what's going on. I'm surprised, too, that we haven't decided that we're going to do that uh, in the not-too-distant future. Maybe land a you know, small lander on, on the surface to kind of figure out what may be going on there and if, indeed, this thing is falling apart. So. Well, who knows? Maybe this finding will actually be what makes us go ahead and plan a mission like that. Obviously, yeah. this is pretty new news, but that would be fantastic. Yeah. I, I would love if this inspired a mission. And it could go on, on the, the old Discovery slate, you know, sort of a down and dirty, cheap lander. And, and Exactly what I was thinking. You know, it doesn't have to be all that fancy. It doesn't have to be something like like, uh, like our, our robotic rovers or anything like that that cost, you know, $1.5 billion. It, it could be a drop-in-the-bucket kind of mission the same way New Horizons was and still yield some good science. Oh, yeah, but don't forget who we're talking about here. We're talking about the U.S. government. And yeah, yeah, I'm not expecting any missions anytime soon. And then there was the whole... I'm not even going to get into that right now. That's, that will take us way over our time limit, but <laughs> I mean, there's a lot to explore at Phobos and, you know, we're all focused on the surface of Mars and all the Mars orbiters. We don't show the moons as much love as we need to, and there's so much to be learned from them. And hopefully this will be a, a wake up call, we'll say to the world of, Hey, we need to look at these moons closer. I'm giving you a standing ovation, Sawyer. I really, I completely agree. No argument here. Well, thank you. I feel special now. <laughs> All right. So well, that one, we've got our whole T-shirt campaign now and everything's set. So let's bring it back down to Earth for our final story. And we're going to bring it to the ground and hopefully soon to the air. And I believe that Virgin Galactic has a new test pilot. Right, Cassie? Yes, they do. They have hired their first female pilot. And boy, is she accomplished and did she earn that job. She's Lieutenant Colonel Callie Latimer, U.S. Air Force retired. She was a combat veteran. She has extensive experience with all kinds of heavy aircraft. She's been an experimental test pilot for NASA, Boeing, the U.S. Air Force. This is not the first time that she's created such a first either. She was the first female research test pilot at NASA's Dryden, now Armstrong, Flight Research Center. And she worked with Sophia over there and the shuttle carrier aircraft, which I know we all love here. And she's, oh gosh, she has flown so many planes for them. It's incredible to see a woman who's so qualified and now Obviously, Virgin Galactic, they need some good news. And this is a really, really nice piece of news. Indeed it is. And uh, wishing her well over there. They, she's going to be going into a situation where they're trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. It's going to be a lot of work. And hopefully she will also bring her experience with her and perhaps add some suggestions to some of the, uh, the things that we had brought up, Mark. You had also alluded to them when we discussed Virgin Galactic and, and its unfortunate accident that happened on Halloween of 2014. And it looks like they've picked the right person to go ahead and offer, uh, also offer some suggestions because of the just the fleet of aircraft that this woman has, has flown. Well, and not only that, but because she's logged more than 6,000 flight hours and more than a thousand hours in test flight over 30 aircraft. But not only that, not only does she fly heavy aircraft, has she flown fighters, but she graduated with honors and distinction with a bachelor's in astronautical engineering from the Air Force Academy. And she also has a master's in astronautics from GWU, George Washington University. So that's a really, I mean, her background is just absolutely phenomenal for this. I'm so glad they gave her the opportunity. And I would like to quote her in an article for spacereft.com. 
She says, quote, I have wanted to go to space ever since I can remember doing anything. Flying is the tip of the iceberg. Some of the most meaningful work for me will be joining Virgin Galactic's team with their incredible experience and organization to complete the vehicle's design and test and setting up operations before the first flight. I'm thrilled that my test pilot experience has led me to Virgin Galactic, and I look forward to making access to space for everybody a reality. Yeah, again, she's got to work it out for her that she's going to make that, that spacecraft a little bit less busy for its pilots and a little bit less ornery to fly. And I think yes. uh, she's got to work it out for her, but it looks like Virgin Galactic made a wise choice. And that's really all they can do, right, is just... Try and try and get the best people in there now, making this work, redesigning what needs to be redesigned, and making sure that what happened last year never happens again. Amen. Exactly, and uh, I'm excited to see Virgin Galactic get back into the game, and we'll see how they do. And congratulations, indeed, to their newest test pilot. And with that, I think that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thank you. And Mark and Sawyer, I am looking forward to meeting you again at a very familiar venue to all of us. And we've got some good stuff coming your way thereafter. So stay tuned, listeners. The ride's just only going to get more and more interesting. Yes, indeed. Definitely stay tuned for our OA4 coverage live from the Kennedy Space Center on Twitter and some Facebook updates. And we will, of course, have a full episode on that coming up in the future. Thank you as well for joining us, Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftless. Thank you so much. And I'd just like to say, uh, everybody, have a very happy Thanksgiving. Indeed. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. I was thinking of the same thing, Cassie. Happy holidays to everybody, and uh, we'll be Ooh, back. Maybe we should say should say to the Americans. <laughs> yes, very true. Yeah. Well, to to all, until later. Yes, indeed. So it's going to be a little bit of a while till our next show because of our first and third Monday schedule. So our next episode, which will be filled with OA4 and some weather information, hopefully, is scheduled to be released the week of Monday, December 7th. So I know it's a little bit of time until you get our next Talking Space episode. So in the meantime, feel free to go back and listen to the IAC episode in case you missed that. Any of our previous astronaut interviews are always great to fill you in in the meantime. And uh, go online and buy our Safe Phobos posters. <laughs> and, happy, and again, to uh, everybody in the United States, happy, happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. Indeed, happy Thanksgiving to everybody in the United States. We will be back after the hopeful OA4 launch. We hope you will join us then. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.